Well, good morning. Let us continue in worship by opening God's Word to Acts chapter 5. And this morning, we are looking at verses 27 through 32. Acts chapter 5, 27 through 32. Now, please listen to the reading of God's Word. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answer, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. When a uh, surgeon does surgery, we could say that surgical procedure is medical knowledge in action. The surgeon is able to operate on the human body, not only because he knows the human body both theoretically, but also because he's able to take that theoretical knowledge and turn it into practical work. His hands know where and how to move because those movements are being informed by the knowledge he has accumulated. In other words, surgery is medical knowledge effectively applied when it actually matters. Surgery is medical knowledge in action. Now, I bet if we could see with our own eyes what surgeons do during surgery, we would be amazed. And the question would be, how in the world can they do that? When we look at the apostles, along with the first Christians, and we pay attention to how they lived as recorded for us in the book of Acts, a similar question could be asked. How in the world could they live like that? After all, if we are honest, we see in them a counterintuitive, almost paradoxical aspect to their lives. This will become especially clear next week as we encounter statements such as the one in verse 41, where we see them rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Really? Rejoicing in suffering. Again, the question is, how in the world could they live like that? Again, in your mind, go back to the surgery illustration. If surgery is medical knowledge in action, then faithful Christian living in times of peace, persecution, or suffering is theological conviction in action. There were truths that the apostles knew, and these truths they knew in their hearts turned into action. In other words, their hearts and their minds were dominated by theological convictions and their actions were informed by those convictions. In this regard, 
the apostles stand as an example for Christians to imitate because Christians in all ages have had to ask the same question. How do we live faithfully in a hostile world? That question hasn't changed. If anything, it has become more important for us to know how to answer it. So in verses 29 through 32, we see the apostolic convictions, which answer the question, why did they live the way they lived? Next Sunday, Easter Sunday, we will be looking at these convictions in action as we consider verses 33 through 42, answering the question, how did they live? Now, before we take a closer look at these apostolic convictions, we need to set the stage. First, by considering once again, briefly, the reaction of the Jewish authorities to the relentless preaching of the apostles. They wouldn't shut up. And we find this reaction in verses 27 and 28. I just want to highlight two things. Notice, first, the absent question. The absent question. Before we look at what the Jewish leaders actually told the apostles, consider with me what they did not say. Did you see what they did not ask? Of course you didn't because it's not there. There is an obvious question they should have asked, but they didn't. Remember the report they heard back in verse 23. What was the report? We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. That was the report. They heard it clearly. The guards were in place. The doors were securely locked. The prison was empty, yet the apostles were preaching in the temple. There is an absent question, which is similar to what we call today the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room, but this was no little elephant. It was more like a mammoth in the room. The Jewish leaders saw it. They simply choose not to talk about it. What is the elephant in the room? What is the absent question? Here it is. How did you get out of prison last night? How did you get out of prison? They didn't ask that question. That's the elephant in the room. Now, I don't think they were indifferent to that question. Instead, I think they were afraid to ask the question because they probably knew the answer. What was the answer? We got out of prison because God is with us. God was with the apostles. God himself released them from prison. But in the face of evidence, the Jewish leaders went the way of denial rather than the way of repentance. But this was not anything new. Do you remember what they did when Jesus left the tomb empty? What did the chief priest, along with the elders of Israel, do when they heard about the empty tomb of Jesus? They created the stolen body theory, as Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 14 of his gospel. They even paid money to get the story going. Do you see the pattern of their behavior? When Jesus left the tomb empty by the power of the resurrection, the Jewish leaders denied it by creating a false narrative. When the apostles of Jesus left the prison empty by the power of God, the Jewish leaders once again denied it by avoiding the obvious question because they already knew the answer. 
And the answer to the absent question revealed that they were not only enemies of the apostles, but more importantly, they were enemies of God. They were enemies of God. I guess you can be religious and hate God all at the same time. But since the temple authorities were not at all interested in the truth to begin with, they went ahead and ignored the obvious question and went straight into the subject they did care about the most, namely their own authority, as revealed in the obstinate statement. The obstinate statement. Here's what they actually said in verse 28. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. As I mentioned last week, intimidation was the only weapon these Jewish leaders had against the apostles. They couldn't do anything else. But in the face of the undeniable evidence of the power of God being shown to them through the apostles, they remained obstinate. Think about it. They remained obstinate and hardened their own hearts because the only alternative in light of everything they had seen uh, so far was to accept the evidence, repent, and believe what the apostles were saying. Notice what the Jewish leaders refused to accept. Consider with me the cumulative nature of the evidence being presented to them. First piece of evidence, the Holy Spirit descended upon the first disciples during Pentecost with supernatural force. The Jewish leaders knew it. Second piece of evidence, many people who heard Peter's first sermon believed and were baptized. The Jewish leaders knew it. Third piece of evidence, a crippled man was instantly and undeniably healed through the ministry of the apostles. The Jewish leaders knew it. Fourth piece of evidence, during Peter's interrogation, the Jewish leaders noticed that even though he was uneducated and common, he spoke with astonishing boldness. Someone else was empowering him. The Jewish leaders knew it. Fifth piece of evidence, the believers were enjoying true fellowship, true unity, and true holiness, so much so that the people witnessing these things were afraid. The Jewish leaders knew it. Sixth piece of evidence, many signs and wonders were done by the hands of the apostles constantly. The supernatural nature of the, this movement was impossible to miss. The Jewish leaders knew it. Are you getting the pattern? And finally, the seventh piece of evidence was this. The apostles were thrown in prison, but they got out. It was divine intervention. Once again, the Jewish leaders knew it. This is quite the cumulative case. The Jewish leaders are being presented with evidence after evidence after evidence that these apostles are speaking the truth of God. But they were jealous. They were obstinate. They were hardened. All they could say was, we told you to keep quiet about Jesus. That's the best they could come up with. After all the evidence, all they could say was, what did we tell you to do? Be quiet about this Jesus. In other words, we don't care about the fact that all of this is clearly from God. All we care about is that you do what we say and stop blaming us for that man's death. 
be quiet. Now, at this point, everyone knows this is reaching a boiling point. And the Jewish leaders are about to think, in verse 33, if prison doesn't do it, we'll just have to kill him. We'll have to kill him. Here's the lesson. Persecution doesn't happen because there is no evidence for God. Persecution happens because in the face of all the undeniable evidence, people remain haters of the truth of God, and they would rather get rid of it than believe and submit to it. Once again, what we see here is the anatomy of the unregenerate mind. Apart from the regenerating grace of God, it will remain in darkness, unable to see. And just like Pharaoh and the Egyptians who saw the mighty power of God manifested over and over and over again and yet remained in unbelief, so too the Jewish leaders saw the mighty power of God manifested over and over and over again through the ministry of the apostles and yet remained in unbelief. Seeing the light, they loved the darkness. So they reinforced their mandate. We strictly charge you not to speak about this Jesus anymore. So now we enter into our next section. In verses 29 through 32, we are now going to see the answer to this question. Why is it that the apostles could not obey this mandate from the authorities? Why is it that they could not obey the Jewish leaders? I will give you no less than nine apostolic convictions. We're going to be here for a while. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, actually, I don't know. We'll see. Nine convictions which effectively removed the possibility of silence. They had to speak. Here's why. Apostolic conviction number one, Jesus rules over us. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. You want to know something important? This means yes. This means no. Life is an either or not a both and. Of course, I understand it doesn't help you that much, so let me provide you with an example of what I mean. And I guess the example per excellence is Eve in the Garden of Eden. She either obeyed God or Satan, but she couldn't obey both, God and Satan. Obeying God and Satan was simply not an option. It was an either or. But Eve is not just an example. What happened in the Garden of Eden set the course of all of human history in motion. And now all human beings live within this realm of either or. Hence the words of Joshua to the people of Israel at Shechem, where the either or is very explicit. You know these words, chapter 24, verses 14 and 15 of Joshua. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose 
this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And here comes the famous words, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua makes it clear, and please don't miss this, Joshua makes it clear, the Bible makes it clear, that you cannot live your life in a state of neutrality as if you were not serving someone or something. Serve and obey you will. You are. The question is, who are you serving? Who are you obeying? Neutrality, this no man's land, it's a myth. It doesn't exist. It's not an option. The only options are these. You are either fallen in Adam, following the course of this world, serving the purposes of darkness, or you are redeemed in Christ, being led by the Spirit, serving the purposes of God. Either fallen or redeemed. Nothing in between. Who are you serving? Who do you obey? The apostles were redeemed, and therefore they obeyed God. Their marching orders were clear. The line had been drawn. Why should we care about this? Well, let me tell you why. My brothers and sisters, we might not be facing a religious council at this moment, And right now, we are not being questioned in a literal sense, but you must know, you must know that life is always a matter of obedience, always a matter of obedience. Why? Because there is always someone in authority over us, always. You are never your own. You're always a slave. The question is, who owns you? Sin or righteousness? Light or darkness? It is becoming increasingly evident to us living in the 21st century that lines are being drawn all around us. We can't deny it anymore. Whether you want it or not, you and I are being pushed harder and harder to choose this day whom we will serve. What are the options? Here they are. God or popular opinion. God or popular opinion. God or the culture of tolerance. God or the self. Brothers and sisters, you are always choosing. You will always follow someone. Don't claim neutrality for yourself. You don't have it. No one in this room does. We're all obedient servants of someone, God or popular opinion, God or the culture of tolerance, God or the self. I remind you that we have a ruler, a king. We have a Lord. His name is Jesus. He rules over us, which means we don't get to rule ourselves. We are not autonomous beings. We are under the lordship of Christ, and at all times, We must obey him. So that means that what you think about sexuality, for example, who gets to tell you how to think 
of homosexuality, of transgenderism, so-called homosexual marriage. You have no authority to decide on your own how you're going to think of those things. Jesus tells you how to think. That's what it means to walk by faith. You are not your own boss. Now, here's the next apostolic conviction, as if that were not enough. Number two, Jesus is God incarnate. Did you notice what they said? We must obey who? God. Let me ask you this. Who gave the apostles their orders? It was Jesus who told them, go and make disciples. It was Jesus who told them, and you shall be my witnesses. Then who are the apostles obeying? Jesus. You can say it. Jesus. Since this whole discussion is about obeying God rather than men, then the apostles were operating under the conviction that Jesus, the one who gave them their orders, was and is God. That is to say, the apostles were not obeying God on the one hand and Jesus on the other hand. That would be nonsense. The simple conclusion then is as follows. To obey Jesus is to obey God because Jesus is God incarnate, which naturally brings us to the next apostolic conviction. Number three, we have nine, so we have to move quite fast through these. Number three, Jesus is the focus of redemptive history. Jesus is the focus of redemptive history. Did you catch what they said in verse 30? How it begins, the God of our fathers. This is not the first time that Peter appeals to the Old Testament in preaching before the leaders of Israel. But it is always interesting when he does because he always speaks of the patriarchs. Who are the patriarchs? Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He always speaks of them in the context of Jesus and his gospel. Have you noticed that? He has done that several times already in the book of Acts. While there have been theological trends, such as dispensationalism, that have sought to create a sharp division between the Old and the New Testaments, it seems like the apostles wanted to do the opposite and show incredible unity between them. Why else would Peter insert a reference to the God of our fathers right in the middle of his talk about Jesus? Here's the answer. The apostles understood Jesus to be the fulfillment of ancient covenants. So let's take a brief journey back to the ancient times. To Adam and Eve, God said after the fall, one of your descendants will do what? Crush the serpent's head, right? Then in the middle of fierce judgment through the flood, God preserved Noah's family. Where? In the ark. Why? In order to keep the promise God made to Adam and Eve. You need human beings in order to bring the seed of Eve into the world. Out of Noah came Abraham. And to Abraham God said, I will multiply you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So now in Jesus God fulfilled both the Adamic promise and the Abrahamic promise. The Adamic promise is fulfilled because Jesus is the seed that came to crush the serpent's head. And we'll see how in just a moment. But what about the Abrahamic promise? Now, in order to answer that question, let us consider the next apostolic conviction. Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered death. 
Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. There's a lot of deep biblical theology in this verse. And again, please notice the continuity in the apostles' thinking. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob raised Jesus. The God of Abraham raised Jesus. That was the plan from the beginning. It is all connected. Now, I understand that the resurrection of Jesus will be a particular emphasis uh, from many pulpits next Sunday, and that's wonderful. However, you need to know that just a quick, quick reading through Acts will tell you that the resurrection of Jesus was not an occasional emphasis for the apostles. It was the central emphasis to everything they did and everything they said. Now, just look at how Peter stated this. It is a fact. It is a historical fact that the God of the patriarchs, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, raised Jesus from the dead. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is the central event in all of human history. How can I say that? Because death has been the central curse of all of human history. The resurrection of Jesus is the central event in all of human history because death has been the central curse in all of human history. Death is the one reality with which all humans have to wrestle. It does not matter whether you are rich or poor, whether you are white, black, brown, American, Venezuelan, Chilean, believe it or not, Mexican, African, highly educated or hardly educated, religious or irreligious, whoever you are, death is coming for you. Are you encouraged? Death is the one thing none of us can escape. But Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered it. And he did so with, within a covenantal framework meaning the God who raised Jesus' body from the grave is the God of Abraham with whom he made his covenant. Why does that matter? It matters because, follow the arguments here, by setting the resurrection of Jesus in unity with the Abrahamic covenant, Peter is teaching us that Jesus came out of the grave precisely because God is faithful to what he promised Abraham. The God of Abraham raised Jesus because through Jesus, the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. How so? Well, remember the covenant. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Is that the covenant? Yes. And what does the risen Jesus have? He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Listen to this, only he who possesses all authority on earth can bless all the families of the earth. Jesus does so by sending the Holy Spirit. Who else has authority to send the Holy Spirit into all the world? Only Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit, listen to this, by the Spirit, the Lord himself grants his worldwide multi-ethnic people the sign of the new covenant, which is no longer physical circumcision, but the circumcision of the heart made without hands. Thus, 
through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the Abrahamic promise is fulfilled because in him all the families of the earth are blessed with salvation. It is imperative that, imperative that we grasp this reality, brothers and sisters. The apostles certainly did. They understood everything as belonging to the flow of redemptive history. Nothing is random. Nothing is purposeless. It was all according to plan, all according to the divine plan. But in order for Jesus to be raised, first he had to die, which is the next apostolic conviction. Next apostolic conviction. Jesus really died. Jesus really died. Verse 30, again, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Once again, here we see how it's, it is all connected in one beautiful story. When God warned Adam and Eve in the garden, he said these words, the day you eat of the tree, you will surely what? You will surely die. Which is another way of saying, the wages of sin is death. That's what he told them in the Garden of Eden. If you sin, you die. Paul said it in different words. The wages of sin is death. On the cross, Jesus did what? He died. Which means that he took upon himself what? The wages of sin. If death is what sin deserves, then Jesus died in order to pay those wages, even though he never sinned. He paid the debt of sin. He really died. He really died on the cross. He really paid the price for our sin because he took upon himself the wages of sin. He paid the price. But notice how Peter says it. You killed him. You killed him. Strong words indeed. The apostles did bring Jesus' blood upon their heads because they did kill him. But here's the beauty. Peter did not say that in defeat. He said that in victory. He said that in victory. Here's what I mean. Peter spoke those words in a way similar to how Joseph spoke to his brothers after revealing who he was. Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Likewise, Peter in here says, you killed Jesus, but what you meant for evil toward him, God meant it for the greatest good ever conceived in the human mind. Your evil deeds against Jesus Christ of Nazareth, God turned into the highest possible good for all of humankind. What is the highest possible good? It is the next apostolic conviction. Six, Jesus is supremely exalted. Jesus is supremely exalted. Verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. Just like Joseph went from the dungeon all the way up to the right hand of Pharaoh. So too, Jesus went from the cross and the grave all the way up to the right hand of God. He is now supremely exalted above all things, and he has the name that is above every name. When Joseph was given the ring of Pharaoh, he was exalted, as it were, and he literally became a savior. It was through Joseph and his newly granted power and authority that many people were saved from starvation. 
Joseph became the manager of Pharaoh's possessions. Jesus, the one who died a criminal's death on a cross, also became a leader and savior. But unlike Joseph, the leadership and saviorhood of Jesus is not confined to one corner of the earth. Jesus has all authority and everything is under his rule. And while Joseph provided a type of salvation through physical food, Jesus provides something much, much, much better, which is the next apostolic conviction. And yet another reason why they could not remain silent. Conviction number seven, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. The Bible says that God exalted Jesus as leader and savior to grant repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Why is repentance and forgiveness of sins related to Jesus? Because Jesus is both the one who procured and secured forgiveness of sins through his own blood upon the cross, but also the one before whom every knee shall bow. Jesus offers forgiveness of sins on the basis of what he did. It is only because of his death for sins that sinners can be forgiven. The holy and, holy and righteous wrath of God for sins has been poured out and satisfied in Christ Jesus. So now, because of him, there is forgiveness of sins for those who confess their sins to God. But it doesn't stop there. When Joseph's brothers recognized him, what did they do? They bowed. Before him. And now, men and women, boys and girls all around the world are also called to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, which leads us to our next apostolic conviction. Number eight, Jesus is worth our life and death. Jesus is worth our life. And death. We are witnesses to these things, said the apostles. The word, the Greek word for witness is martureo, from which we get the English word for martyr. A martyr is one who willingly dies because of or in the act of testifying or speaking on behalf of a particular cause. And this, by the way, is how the Apostle Paul saw and understood his own calling as an apostle. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul says this, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul made a direct connection between not counting his life as precious to himself and his call to testify, which is also the word martureo. The idea of losing one's life for the sake of the message was embedded in the apostolic call from the beginning. Therefore, when the apostles say to the Jewish leaders that they are witnesses to these things, they are not merely saying that they are called to speak about them, but even that they're willing to die for these things pertaining to Jesus. They are willing to die. But the apostles had one final conviction. They knew they were not alone. And this is conviction number nine. Jesus is for us. Jesus is for us. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. 
whom God has given to those who obey him. Notice, my friends, notice that the power behind the boldness of the apostles and the progress of the gospel itself, that power behind it is not human ingenuity. It is not human intellect. It is not human philosophy. It is God himself. But this does not come as a surprise. After all, it was Jesus himself who said to the disciples in Matthew 28, verse 20, And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. The Holy Spirit is Jesus with us. Therefore, the power of, for gospel ministry will never run out. It will never run out. Whether we are preaching a sermon, teaching a Sunday school to children, or defending the faith before a hostile crowd somewhere in the world, it is the Spirit Himself who testifies about Jesus, and He brings life. So we don't need to be afraid, nor do we need to compromise or change our message to make it more acceptable before the world. Only the Spirit can give life. So we speak with confidence. So here are four brief lessons I want to give you. Four lessons on faith. Four lessons on faith. Number one, faith is conviction. Faith is conviction. Once again, please note that the apostles lived by faith. We know this because part of the definition of faith, according to Hebrews 11.1, 1, is the, the second half is the conviction of things not seen. Likewise, our calling in the 21st century has not changed because the nature of faith has not changed. We walk by what? Faith, meaning we walk with the conviction of things not seen. And upon the basis of these invisible but never-changing realities, we live. Noah, Noah built the ark, and he did so by faith. The world mocked Noah, yet he believed what God had said. Likewise, the world may mock us when we tell them to come and enter the ark of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. And yet, we keep preaching. The world may mock us when we, by faith, seek to live a life of holiness. And yet, we keep on living. Why? Because of faith. We walk by the conviction of things not seen. Second lesson, faith does not cancel obedience. Faith does not cancel obedience. The apostle said, we should obey God. Is that what they said? They said, we must obey God. For the apostles, obedience was a necessity. So let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Does that mean the apostles were legalistic Pharisees that believed in salvation by works and not by grace because they said we must obey? Of course not. They obeyed God 
not because they were legalistic Pharisees. They obeyed God because they believed God. Faith and obedience are not mutually exclusive. In fact, obedience is the joyful expression of a living faith. For instance, let me apply this a little bit. God tells us in His Word to flee from sexual immorality. The Bible tells us in His Word to flee from sexual immorality. Is it legalism to obey? No. By faith, we believe it, and also by faith, we obey it. We flee from sexual immorality. So I ask you, are you walking by faith? Don't deny your faith by disregarding the call to obedience. Number three, and we're almost done. Faith calls for boldness. Faith calls for boldness. At this point in the narrative of the book of Acts, the apostles know they are risking their own lives by saying the things they said. The Jewish leaders want to kill them. Don't be confused about this. Dying in the, 20, in the first century was just as bad as dying in the 21st century. What I mean is that it wasn't any easier for the apostles and the first Christians to face the prospect of severe persecution, prison, and even death. Prison was prison. Death was death. All the same as it is for us. They preached not because dying was easier. They preached because they were bold for the sake of truth. They knew truth matters. How much does truth matter to us? And finally, faith is centered on Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith. All the convictions held by the apostles were centered on him. So I give them to you again. Jesus rules over us. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the focus of redemptive history. Jesus conquered death. Jesus really died for our sins. Jesus is supremely exalted. Jesus saves. Jesus is worth our life and our death. And Jesus is for us. This is still true. All of this reveals what is the triumph of the Christian. The triumph of the Christian. But we'll save that for Easter Sunday. So let us pray. Father, we thank you that these words are words of life. And I pray that you will use what has been proclaimed and heard this morning. I thank you that ultimately the work does not depend on the eloquence or the abilities of the preacher. I thank you that ultimately the work depends on your power. And so I rest upon that. And I know that the Spirit can do wonderful things with his own word. And so Father, increase our faith. Help us not to look at the things that are seen, but at those things that are invisible. And help us to consider the one who reigns and rule, rules above all things. The one who died for our sins, rose again, 
and now is seated at the right hand of you. May his name be exalted both here and around the nations. And may he continue to build his church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.